Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the Employment Law Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Ahmed Bindra. And we are excited today to be speaking with Michelle Katz. Michelle is the founding partner of Advitam IP LLC. Michelle has been practicing intellectual property law for more than 20 years, and she focuses on strategic analysis, licensing, prosecuting, and litigating all areas of intellectual property law. And just for anybody listening, if we say IP, moving forward, we mean intellectual property because it's a tongue tire. Michelle is also a certified mediator. And in addition to all of her professional accolades, Michelle and her firm started a scholarship in the name of her father and annually funds a master's scholarship at Hebrew University. Michelle, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I love your firm name. Thank you. Did I say you know what it means? <laughs> no. Close. It's actually Advitam IP which means intellectual property for life. And you've already defined IP and we will be throwing that abbreviation around a lot today, I have a feeling. In what language? In Latin. I should have known that. Uh, For those lawyers out there who rely on the Black's Law Dictionary, you'll find it on one of the first few pages. (laughs) That's clever. I I suspect if the yellow pages were still a thing and being alphabetical mattered, that would have been useful in that respect as well. Well, certainly we do a lot, or we did do a lot of conferences for marketing purposes. And it was nice being on the first page because people tend to look at the first page, flip through and look at the, and look at the end, right? Yeah. They're not looking at the middle. <laughs> no, you know, no, not so much. So with Katz and Gurak, which are the, myself and my partner, Richard Gurak, we thought, no, let's go, let's find an A name. And of course, we turned to the Black Slog Dictionary. I mean, just to get ideas as we were brainstorming. Well, that's clever. And, yeah, it's clever too, because most law firms are just named after last name. So it's kind of cool that you came up with something different. And this was back in 2012. So now you do see more firms moving away from surnames and going into, you know, coined, coined words. But at that time, I mean, there were very few of us out there. Well, that's a good segue because coin words and whatnot, I think, would tie into intellectual property law. So this is an employment law podcast. But before we get to the overlap between IMP and employment, can you just give us maybe the Cliff Notes version? What what is intellectual property? What are we talking about today? Sure. Intellectual property is a broad range of areas that fall within the umbrella of intellectual property. So it's not real property. We are not talking about property transactions of homes, for example. They have to do with intellectual property. So that means copyright, trademark, trade secrets, patents. Those are probably the big four that most people have heard of. And the ability to monopolize, whether it's your name, invention, copyrighted material, which there's a whole range of, you know, a website, for example, falls into copyright and trade secrets, you know, like the Coca-Cola formula, you know, it's, you can monopolize on that and you have a limited amount of time to do so. So you want to exploit those rights. And in IP law, exploitation is a positive term. You want to exploit those rights so that you can carve out your market share during the time that you own 
exclusive rights to your intellectual property. So is intellectual property law based upon statutes, common law, a combination of? I've done some trade secret work, so there is usually a trade mm-hmm. secret act, but how does that work in the context of overall IP? So it depends on what area within intellectual property you're talking about. So trademarks are governed, for example, by statute, but there's also common law. So that in the trademark sense means that you're just using the mark without filing a registration with the government and you can still derive rights, but the rights are not the same. And if you're trying to enforce those rights, you're, you are under a heavier burden if you are relying on your common law rights. Common law rights, however, don't exist for all areas of intellectual property. And so then within that umbrella, you mentioned patent. And I remember from law school days, there's a separate patent bar. Sometimes you have to, or if you want to do certain type of patent work that you'd have to pass. Can you walk us through the nuances of how that's a little different? Sure. So there is a separate bar called the patent bar if you want to be a patent attorney, but you don't have to be an attorney to take the exam. If you're not an attorney, you can still take the exam and become a patent agent. So it's a technical specialist in whatever the area of art is that they specialize in. Now, if you have, if you pass the patent bar, it's a very difficult exam. You're assigned a number I believe they're still in the five digits that the lingo within the within the IP community is, you know, are you a five digit? Okay, because when you pass the bar exam, then you are assigned a number and you are required to use that bar number when you're corresponding with the patent office. That's super cool. I didn't realize you didn't have to be an attorney to take the patent bar. Right. Or, but you can be, and many, many are, but it's not required. What is required though, to just sit for the exam is a certain number of science, science classes. There are requirements that you need to satisfy in order just to sit for the exam. Well, thanks for that brief overview. So that, that I think hopefully for the, for the lawyers here, right, we've laid foundation now. So let's see if we can't tie it back to them. So, so to circle back then, right, there, there is some overlap between intellectual property and employment law. Let's start with a, one of the more obvious questions. If, if an employee develops intellectual property of some kind and develops something new, a product, a, a, an anything, who owns that? So it depends, right? That's such the lawyer answer. Because the agreement will dictate the employment agreement should dictate who owns what and what's expected of the employer and the employee. Now, typically, the employee, as they're working in the, within the scope of their employment, what they create, what they innovate, is likely to be construed as owned by the employer. Because what they're creating and I'll use a, a copyright term that you may have heard, uh, work made for hire, okay? So if someone's creating what, you know, they are an employee, they're, they're working in the, in the facility, right? In the office or remotely in these days, but still through, you know, w- regular working hours, they get it, you know, W-2, all of those things lead to that individual being considered an employee, And if they're an employee, then it's very likely then the courts will construe that the work that they're doing within the scope of their employment is going to be considered owned as um, the employer will own that work. 
Is that the case even if there's no employment agreement? Yes, because exactly. And they're going to look at they're going to look at all those. So the cases that you typically see are are the question is raised, is the individual an employee or are they an independent contractor? Right. And so they're going to look at all, they're going to look at all these things. Is the employee using the employer's equipment? Are they what they're working on through the 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 reasonable or expected hours, whatever that might be, nine to five, but it could it could vary, right? Depending depending on the company, these these all of these factors are they is the employee or independent contract contractor using their their own supplies or are they using supplies of the of the company of the employer? So all these weigh into deciding answering that question, and then if it's decided that that individual is an employee then most likely it's going to be the employer that's going to be considered the owner or in copyright terms, author of the work. It's interesting you mentioned that because I mean, in our in our line of work, right, like there are a lot of different common law or statutorily created factor tests that we deal with. And we I, I mean, independent uh, contractor and employee is a good example because we have a six factor test, the economic realities test and wage and hour law that gets used for that sort of thing. So it's interesting you have some overlap there in terms of what factors do we consider to determine who owns what. And I also, it, it, it's interesting because it's one of the things that I, I don't always think about as much, it, either on the back end in the severance context or on the front end, when you look at the employment agreements, right? Uh, quite often companies put that in there um, saying, if you create anything while you're here, it's ours, dude. You know, I mean, in, in, in simple terms. That's right. That's right. And so if it's not well drafted, there could it could lead to lead to ambiguity. I mean, look at the life we are leading now where we are no longer. It's not so cut and dry necessarily whether we are working. You know, we can kind of work any any time. Right. As long as we're meeting our deadlines, certainly in the legal world, that might not. I mean, that's not going to be the case across all industries. But for those of us who work virtually, right, and we're not necessarily uh, even hybrid style, but if you're working remotely, as so many of us still are, then, you know, you might take a break to work on something else that's your own side hustle or, you know, side project. And does the company now own that? So that that was going to be my next question. So if you're working on a side hustle and there's no agreement in place, does the company then own the IP for stuff that an individual does, let's say it's 7 p.m. from home? And the answer is they could. They could, because again, are they using their company's computer? Are they using data or whatever that, that is part of the company's information, their trade secrets? Is it competitive to what the employer is working on. I mean, all of these are factors that weigh in to answer that question. And the more it is yes, 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 right? The more it means the employer is likely owning that, whatever it is that you created. And I do feel like it's important when you're talking about intellectual property to understand that intellectual property is an expression of the idea not necessarily the idea itself, which is not protectable. You know, that's why that's why NDAs are, are you know, non-disclosure agreements are so important because you might not have a lot of schematics 
or drawings or figures or spreadsheets or anything like that yet to to actually support the the intellectual property of that idea. So let's say an, an employee or an individual wants to have a side hustle. They want to create a gray area business. Maybe it's somewhat competitive. Maybe it isn't. What should they do then to make sure they continue to own that IP or authorship? Certainly they need to read carefully those sections of their employment agreement. So important. And so when you say those sections, so definitely the work for hire type language, what other clauses are companies putting in these employment agreements that employees should be looking at closely? The confidentiality provision as well as the intellectual property provision. There's usually a separate intellectual property provision, also assignment provisions. Look out for those. And don't just rely on the terms as you believe they mean in day-to-day conversation. Some agreements actually have a term section. Usually it's in the early the early pages of an agreement that actually define what certain terms mean. Take a look at that. It's not a bad idea to consult a lawyer. Even if you're a lawyer, <laughs> you know, consult a lawyer, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. we are, I'm an intellectual property expert. Okay. That's, I've been doing this for over 20 years. Right. But I don't dabble in other areas of the law. I contact my friends who are experts in, in the areas that I am not an expert in. Right. And so I encourage even the lawyers out there, you know, or if you're a generalist or you have a client with these who is concerned about these issues because they're very concerning. Once you litigate, it it can it can really spiral out of control. And certainly on the financial side, how much litigation costs. One thing you mentioned, which is definitely true, confidentiality clauses are drafted so broadly. They generally do cover. And so this. So a couple of years ago, I read a book about this and I wanted to talk through it with you a little bit because you're more of an expert on this topic than I am. So Mattel had litigation over the Brat stall. Um, can you walk us through like top level what happened in that lawsuit? Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois in the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set. Yeah, so <clears throat> yeah, so this is a pretty famous case in, in the IP world. And even, I think that it becomes, when I hear other people talking or know, knowing about a certain case that affects IP, I know it's big. Okay, (laughs) because we're we're actually following this stuff and a lot of this made the news. So, you know, Barbie, who's been around for a long, long time, had an employee who came up with an idea for a doll. That's the Bratz doll. They they I mean, this is not an I this is not an IP case from the standpoint of likelihood of confusion, which is what we usually see right in these cases. And if you look at this doll side by side. I don't think that you would cause and there would be any confusion that that Barbie and Bratz, the name is different. The look is different. This came down to the employment agreement of this employee with Mattel. He ended up leaving Mattel and joining MGA. OK, also a big hitter. 
an MGA, use the, you know, drawings of the employee and came out with brats and they became so popular. In fact, they, I, rem, I remember, I remember I have a daughter who's now 16, but at the time when they were super huge, my daughter was a toddler and she wanted, I mean, I remember the vine from, it was like so big, like the Beanie Babies, if you remember that craze. Yeah, um, I remember there really, was a movie I mean, that came out even. Yes. I mean, oh, there, all the merchandising. I mean, we're talking like, we're talking huge, huge money on this line of dolls. Okay. So, you know, it comes out that, that the employee actually came up with the drawings prior to his employment with MGA. And so the question became, does Mattel own those drawings, the sketches? Okay. So the district court actually found in favor of Mattel. And then it was, the case was appealed to the ninth circuit. That's, that's the appeals court in, in California. So they, they do a review of it and they actually reversed the case. They reversed the, the finding in favor of MGA because the agreement that the employee signed with Mattel was ambiguous as to who would have owned those drawings. And the case completely turned because the court found that the employment agreement was ambiguous because whether the idea of the new doll fell within the definition of quote unquote invention was unclear. So there were a lot of, there were, I mean, there were a lot of issues related to to the contract. And because it was found ambiguous, they could not find in favor of Mattel. They couldn't do it. And it goes back to your point earlier, make sure you understand what you're signing. I had a friend tell me a story once where he had drafted a contract and the client calls him up and says, you know, this contract is very easy to read and understand. Is it legal? There's no legal verbiage in here. And that's exactly how you want the contract. If Mattel had done that here, they probably would have won this lawsuit. Yeah, it could be because there was even question as to whether the the Bratz dolls were created during the scope of his employment and what scope of employment even meant was ambiguous under the contract. So that I think segues into another question I had. We talked a little bit about including work for hire language, confidentiality language. What are other things businesses then can do to make sure they're protecting their information? Obviously, clear drafting, good drafting. Yeah, good, good drafting. And again, you know, I go back to like, have a, you know, a lawyer that specialize, you know, I'm into specialists, right? Because you don't want to make this like Mattel mistake, <clears throat> you know, and they're, I would imagine have ha- had great legal counsel, but somehow this fell through the cracks. And sometimes you don't know until it's tested. So being up on case law and what, where the ambiguities are, you know, go back to your agreements, right? Go back to your agreements and take a look. And maybe they don't need to be redrafted. Maybe they just need to be revised or, you know, just reviewed with certain modifications. And I have done that with clients who have been in business for a while and it's good to do a refresh, right? Because also the laws change too. And we learn more as more cases come out from the courts, we actually learn more, but trade secrets, certainly that's, and you, you mentioned that earlier, I mean, is that 
you can't, you have to treat your trade secrets in a certain way too. You can't just have an agreement that, you know, your, your trade secrets are covered under this agreement. You have to actually treat them as trade secrets. You can't have your formula, for example, all in one place. You, and you can't, you know, have anyone can just log in and see all your vendor lists. If something isn't secret or treated as secret, then how can it be a trade secret? Exactly. And so you do see these cases where, where, where you know, there was too much access, right? It, access has, can only be to top level people. There's a, a whole list, we, a checklist we go through when we were wa- working with our clients on, on setting up the trade secret barriers, right? To make sure that they're actually proofing their trade secret. Because the issue with trade secrets is once it's out, how, you can you can't reel that back in. Yeah, it's very, I mean, that, that's, that's very difficult. I, I had a really interesting case once. I was representing restaurants and they had secret recipes, you know, long family recipes. And the great thing about trade secrets actually is you can keep them secret forever. You know, they don't expire unless the secret gets out. Okay. So they had hired a, a family member to work in the facility who ended up basically got caught with her hands in the dough. Uh, there was an Italian restaurant and opened up a competing uh, restaurant with her, fa- you know, with her family, with her immediate family. And so we had, we filed, those are state cases as opposed to federal cases. So we, we filed the case locally and we, we, we were able to get a, you know, a, a judgment against, against them, but it, we, it, those, it was because that the way they handled their trade secrets was appropriately protected under the law to ensure that if there was a breach, then we'd have a cause of action, yeah, um, was, a defendable one. I was going to ask you about, yeah, what is the process of, I guess, litigating an IP case or a trade secrets case? One of the one of my cases I really like in Illinois is there's this case in the context of a confidentiality agreement and non-compete where the court essentially says, look, if you're going to take a lackadaisical approach to enforcing your agreements and you're not going to seek an immediate injunction and try to stop the breach of the confidentiality obligations immediately, then we're not going to consider this stuff confidential. How does that work out or play out in the IP world? How are these quick lawsuits? Are they slow lawsuits? Do we have quick lawsuits? I don't know. From that standpoint, or are you seeking like a temporary injunction on like a Tuesday and that type of yeah, thing? Yeah. So yeah. So you can go in for emergency relief. Absolutely. We see it in 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 conference like conferences, right, where there's trade shows, and you can get an emergency injun- injunction. You know, customs. You can use ice. Right. You can work hand in hand with them to remove infringing products. Whether, be, whether it's because it bears an infringing trademark or on the patent side, because it's an infringing equipment, you know, invention, that's, you, you, you absolutely, you do see emergencies actions come through. But during the normal litigation of a case, you've got the mandatory hearings, the conferences, you know, the 26F conference, it, it, a lot like other, other litigate in other areas of the law where you have discussed, you know, then discovery opens, right. And depositions, expert testimony, where it goes in stages. So IP cases are typically, they are like other cases, the meet and confer requirements. I mean, 
those litigations, that, those cases that are filed, for example, in the Northern District of Illinois, where all those rules apply, would be as if it was an IP case or, you know, perhaps a breach of contract case. I didn't realize you could go to ICE to get it, try to get enforcement. So if you wanted to go that route, do you need a court order first or can you, mm -hmm. how does that yeah. work? Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and so are there jurisdictional issues too? For example, like if someone is using a brand name or an IP, but they're located overseas or they're located in a different state, how does that process then play out? Yeah. So sometimes you use the, that, the IT to, if the infringer is overseas, those cases typically go quicker. They're more of like a rocket docket type of speed than I would say other, you know, the normal district courts, but you have to serve, I mean, in normal litigation, you have to serve through the Hague Convention in most cases, unless you can anchor them somehow. Sometimes they might have an agent in the United States. So we do, re you know, you, research is required to figure out the best, the best route. If they have filed, I mean, say it's a trademark case, they probably have on the trademark database with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, there's a public database of you know, pending and registered trademarks. You can look up their counsel. They probably have counsel, at least at some point during the what's called prosecution, which is the trademark processes and, and patent process also that's called prosecution. And that is the application process of from filing to issuance of a patent or, you know, the registration of a trademark. And you might be able to, to talk to their counsel and negotiate the service issues. Otherwise it's Hague and Hague's going to take a few months. Switching gears from prosecuting the intellectual property aspect of this and talking, I guess, circling back to how businesses tend to defend their intellectual property. So looking at this again, from the management side, it, are there, uh, how aggressively do businesses need to defend their intellectual property? And I guess as a piggyback question, because I can't do this without at least one compound question here. Do I need to object? Yeah. <laughs> Normally we wait until we finish this bad question and then we object. It, it, it's just understood. I'll do it. And there's an Amit level standing objection. So that was a really bad lawyer joke for any non-lawyers that may actually be listening here, several of them. So back to my crummy question that would definitely be objectionable in a, in a deposition. Um, you know, are there so so first, how aggressively do businesses need to defend their intellectual property? And then I guess, are there consequences to them being lax about it? Are there estoppel issues or do they give up or waive those rights if they're not careful enough or aggressive enough? There is there is a a defense called acquiescence. So if you have a history and I mean, also made reference to this a little bit earlier on about you know, if you don't, if you, if you sit on your rights, essentially, you don't enforce, like you don't enforce your contracts, that sort of thing. You do set up basically an obstacle for yourself because acquiescence means exactly that, that you are not enforcing your rights and therefore you lose because the defendant can say, hey, well, you know, you didn't enforce against this person or this person. There's all these other people. Now, you're not obligated to litigate against everyone at once. But if it shows acquiescence, 
right? That you really aren't, you're just sitting on your rights, then yeah, you could actually lose your rights. That's how, you know, trademarks, when they become, it's, it's analogous when they become genericized, you know, because, you know, like Kleenex is a brand of tissues, but a lot of people will say, well, I'm going to, you know, do you have any Kleenex? If companies don't actually take a stance against the, that genericizing, then they can lose their rights. Elevator was a trademark. Linoleum, those were trademarks and they lost their rights. Those are examples of, of trademarks that used to exist, but now are for public use. Somebody, somebody relative, I think on my wife's side was telling me a story recently, actually along those lines where she worked in a healthcare business, maybe pharmaceutical or an insurance company. I don't remember. And she offered somebody a bandaid and like all the executives in a meeting, like went, went silent and like everybody's color rushed from their face. And they're like, we call them bandages here. Like that's, it was the same thing, right? Cause bandaid is a company that makes, you know, the sticky bandages. It's bandaid brand. It is the bandaid brand. Right. But I like my whole life, I've literally known this item I have on my thumb right now to meet this type of bandage when it's like, nope, that's just actually the type of uh, adhesive, right? Like it's a so- bandaid brand bandage. So are we now getting sued by Kleenex? Is that what's going to happen here? <laughs> <laughs> but they have done some campaigns. I, I don't, it's the same with Xerox copies. You know, like, can I get a Xerox? I do think that certain companies have gone through campaigns to basically get their marks back when they see it slipping. So, you know, on one hand, you want everyone saying your name, right? Like your, your mark, your any of your trademarks, that's fantastic, right? You're connecting with the consumers. They want, they want your brand. The problem is, is when it becomes generic, they don't mean your brand anymore. They mean anything that's like that, right? Is there, is there a time limit on how long you can keep a trademark before it becomes generic? That, that is a good question. It really has to do with when it's being te- you know, tested. So if someone, if someone wants to go in and cancel your trademark before the trademark office, they can try to say you've, you've like a, you've a, abandoned or acquiesced. Yeah. Acquiesced. Yeah. Cause you haven't really, you're still using it. So you haven't abandoned it. So it's not quite, it's not quite that, but um, that, that is, or sometimes people go in and file it, It's called a, I mean, this is what I'm talking about. It's got a name. It's called a petition to cancel. So you can actually try to go in and, and cancel. Uh, a trademark, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's more of a defense. You can really, you can win on that. If they, if someone's coming after you for trademark infringement, as an example, and, and, and you know, that they're just letting everybody use their brand generically that it is a, it's a defense. So to come full circle, we talked about mistakes businesses often make, which can include not defending their IP or using poorly drafted agreements. What are mistakes employees often make when they want or pitfalls or traps they fall into? Uh, well, they don't, they don't necessarily, um, or were you saying pitfalls, like in, in what context? Any IP like, context. Which, so for like, yeah, the Mattel cases, I think is a good example mm-hmm. where, you know, what are employees doing that gets them into trouble? Well, certainly they need to be careful if they are working on a side hustle, that it doesn't compete with what they're doing. And if they're unsure, they might want to, they might want to talk to HR. Hopefully they've got a good HR person to express their concerns. Otherwise, 
what can happen is that it 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 puts the employer off that they can't trust the employee. I, I mean, it's great if they can be collaborative and figure, you know, and actually communicate, right? And actually communicate because otherwise, you, you know, you you I mean you've got these big issues that can and 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 unfortunately you know, for the employee, the employer is the one with the deeper pocket. So it, it becomes very, you know, it becomes very difficult. Now, if it's, I mean, if it's, you know, and maybe that doesn't work for the employee and I get that side too, you know, they don't want to disclose because they don't want to be told no, you know, like, right. And so they really need to look, I mean, if this has nothing to do with what the company's doing, then they're probably, you know, like I they're probably okay, but they should consult a lawyer, Right. So that, cause it's really fact specific, this stuff. So it's, and, and you really do want to look through the factors that, you know, that are, that are listed in the employee patent act, for example, that, and then the rules between independent contractor employee, like about, you know, all those rules uh, or factors that we discussed earlier and make like, make an educated decision on whether you should pursue this, right? A lot of times people do like side hustle, they need their full-time job and then they have other pursuits. They wanna do something out, you know, they wanna move on and they may be free to do so, but, or, or hireable to, to somebody else, but then you're getting into like the competitive issue and you really need to look at that contract hard. How has um, COVID generally impacted IP prosecution, litigation, protecting brands? I think more people are doing side hustles as well right now. Oh, the uptick in IP work, whether it's litigation to carve out your, you know, market share to keep people out in, in sales, your sales to you and, you know, the filings with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. I will tell you that when I, when I file um, trademark applications, which is, you know, often it used to say when you filed it that the examiner would be assigned within three to four months. It now says six months just to get your application to get assigned to an examiner. No, so for those who aren't familiar with that, there's actually a human being who gets assigned to, to the electronic filing. I, I don't know anyone who, who files on paper anymore. They actually charge you more now. If they char- there's a surcharge if you, if you file on paper. So that makes it really easy and streamlined, but because of the volume, I don't think they're having staff issues. Like, you know, this is not the restaurant and, you know, it's not, this industry is different. And there is such a high volume that they have doubled. And I think they're being, I think that, <laughs> I think that six months is actually maybe an underestimate as to how long it's taking to get your case assigned just to an examiner. I mean, then you've got to go through all the different stages of prosecuting your trademark, your trademark application, which, you know, like a bill on Capitol Hill is not an automatic thing, right? It gets reviewed. Okay. Then there's this publication time period where anyone in the world can object to it. And that can be extended. You've got to prove use before you register in, in most cases. And so it, it takes a long time. So I used to estimate you know, a year to a year and a half, if there were no complications with the, with the trademark process, the prosecution process. But now, I mean, it's, it's going to be longer. I would expect, I would expect longer now. So you think now it's going to take 
two, two and a half, three years to go through the entire process? If, if there's no, if there's no issues, I would say probably I would add, I would add six months. Right. So I would say, you know, it could be two years to two and a half years. If you, if you're filing extensions, you know, of, of time, each extension right now is six months. Right. And then there's, if someone opposes you or there's a cited registration because there's a likelihood of confusion between you and a prior registration, you know, that's going to delay things even more. So essentially in like three to five years, we're going to have a bunch of new cool stuff coming out. <laughs> well, it doesn't prevent you from coming out with the cool stuff, stuff earlier. Okay. That, that That's the good thing is that, you, I mean, the, the, the issue is that you, you move on with the cool stuff, right? Like business as usual from that, you know, as long as you can get through like supply chain issues, other, you know, other issues that you might have in producing your product, but you know, it's not done till it's, you get the registration. You can't change your TM or your SM, that superscript to an R in a circle, which means you have a federal register, you know, a federal registration until that's done. You know, and, and then it's, you know, you want that R, you want that circle R it's uh, like a sign of, you know, completion, credibility. There's, there's, it's easier to enforce when you have a registration, then I have a trademark. You stop, it's hard to stop someone with, you know, cease and desist, you know, cease and desist letter because you're still relying on common law rights, which as I discussed, like in the very beginning is harder, it's harder to enforce. Awesome. Well, we have one last question for you. And we know you don't know it's coming this time. Yeah. Yeah, we know. So <laughs> our one last question is we'd like to end our episode with a shout out of the week something positive. So we've had people shout out their children, books, movies, uh, political figures, anything you want to shout out as something positive. Yeah, this is a great week in, in our house. It's very celebratory week because not only is it Hanukkah and we celebrate Hanukkah, but my eldest daughter turned 16 yesterday and my youngest daughter turns 10 today. Oh, wow. So Happy we will birthdays. be, yes, we will be celebrating after we are done with our podcast today. Of her birthday. <laughs> well, happy birthday to both your daughters. Now, uh, anybody get their driver's license today? No, not today. Not today. But she is working on more hours. But yeah, she has her permit and she's, yeah, she's just working on hours. And then she'll be joining the, the rest of us on the road. <laughs> Fair enough. Do you have anything else you'd like to plug right now? Coming up in the future near... I also, if it's of interest to those who want to learn more about intellectual property, I actually host a podcast for the Women's IP World magazine. And that might be something of interest to, to people out there. It's a monthly podcast that we started. I think we've, we have about 10 episodes so far. Last question, Michelle, if people want to find you, whether for representation, to learn more about these topics, your podcast, or just to, to bend your ear for some reason, how do they do that? They can email me, mcats at edvitamip.com. And we will put that in the show notes as well. Your email is now public information. Good luck to you. <laughs> yes. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on and breaking down this really complicated topic into digestible and interesting terms and teaching all of us a little bit about intellectual property and how it relates to employment law. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.